0: Hello and welcome to the BLS Report. This is a podcast produced by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia uh, to honour the memory of our friend and colleague, Professor Bob Baxt. Today I have with me Scott Butler, who is a partner of Hall and Wilcox Lawyers and Chair of the Insolvency and Reconstruction Committee of the Business Law Section. Hello, Scott. Hi Pamela. Nice to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're going to run through some issues to do with insolvency. It's very topical, of course, at the moment, going into what is likely to be the biggest recession that we've seen in Australia for several decades. So we're going to try and achieve a couple of things today. The first is for many business law section members, including me, we've been in the happy position of not really having to keep up with current developments in insolvency law for quite a while. So, I thought we might start by just running through some of the recent developments since 2016 that some colleagues may not be aware of, and then we'll turn our focus to specific measures related to the COVID-19 response. So, Scott, for those of us who haven't kept up for the last five years or so. Can you run us through maybe starting with the Insolvency Law Reform Act of 2016, some of the recent developments that we should be aware of in insolvency law?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, we've uh five key, key developments, I think, which are, are worth mentioning. As you uh, mentioned, Pamela, the first is the Insolvency Law Reform Act of 2016. That came into effect in 2017 and Really, it came on the back of um, a parliamentary inquiry into insolvency law reform. And most of the amendments in that act relate to aligning the procedures in personal and corporate insolvencies in relation to certain matters, such as how to approve an insolvency practitioner's remuneration, the holding of meetings, how insolvency practitioners can be removed and replaced by creditors and so forth. So quite sort of um, administrative type matters. But mostly, I would say the most significant change in those reforms for the insolvency industry were the introduction of new rights for creditors to access information about the external administration that they're a part of. And um, there was a new procedure introduced which allowed creditors to request information from the insolvency practitioner running those proceedings And that information has to be provided within five business days unless the request is unreasonable. And if you don't comply with that request, the court can order the information to be provided. So it's quite a good tool for creditors. And uh, it certainly has made the insolvency practitioners um, have to be much more responsive um, and more open in the information that they provide to creditors in uh, in, um, external administrations. And in particular, the Commonwealth got involved, as you would expect, in in law reform and made sure that they have a separate and specific power to request information. And they can do that whether or not the information request is reasonable or not. And there's been case law on that. And we find that the Commonwealth, particularly the department which administers the Fair Entitlement Guarantee Scheme, it's the one that issues most of these information requests and uh, Does that probably literally on a daily basis in seeking to recover the funds that the government has paid out under that scheme. And then we move on to September of 2017. Um, Also, we had the introduction of the Safe Harbour. So, the Safe Harbour against insolvent trading. And that was a major insolvency development. Um, It had been in the pipeline for many years after various submissions to government about what was necessary to assist in restructuring and as many of the members would already be aware directors of course have a positive duty to prevent a company incurring debts when the company is insolvent or debts which will cause the company to become insolvent and if they fail to comply with that duty they can be personally liable for any of those debts incurred during that period if they remain unpaid in in a liquidation But the safe harbour laws provide directors with protection from this liability for debts incurred during this safe harbour period. So it's quite important. And the way the laws operate is by setting out certain requirements, which if met, will allow a court later on when considering an insolvent trading claim against the director to find that the director was in this safe harbour and therefore protected from insolvent trading. Now, the key to safe harbour is that it starts to apply from the time a director, after beginning to suspect that the company may become insolvent, starts developing a course of action, which is reasonably likely to lead to a better outcome for the company than the immediate appointment of an administrator or liquidator.
0: So this is sometimes referred to as a a kind of workout safe harbour, is that right?
1: It is a workout safe harbour in that I think people get a bit confused in that they think that going into Safe Harbour is something potentially like you know, going into a Chapter 11, you, you file something and, and you're inside it. The reality is that it's steps that the directors take whilst they're implementing a restructure or a turnaround to give them protection against debts incurred during that turnaround. If later on the turnaround, for some reason, unfortunately fails and they find themselves being sued or pursued by a liquidator for insolvent trading.
0: Yes. Yeah, so do you have to tell somebody that you're in that process or is it just a matter of being able later on to point to steps that you took to commence the or to enter that so safe harbor period?
1: You don't need to tell anybody. So it's it's exactly as you've said, it's it's just pointing later on and showing the liquidator, hopefully first, to convince a liquidator that there's no point in pursuing you for insolvent trading because you took the steps to be in the safe harbour or um, if the worst comes to the worst, showing that to a court when a judge is considering whether or not you're liable for insolvent trading. And so, I mean, one of the questions we get around safe harbour is if you're a listed entity, do you need to disclose that um, to the ASX? And the answer is is no, Um, there's a guidance note, that is issued by the, the ASX on, on that point. Clearly, if the um, underlying issues, which have caused you to go into safe harbour, um, are material enough and would require you to disclose under the ASX listing rules, then you would have to disclose those matters. But you don't have to disclose that you're actually in safe harbour. Now, it's been close to three years since the um, safe harbour came into effect, and I think. There there has been a general increase um, over time from directors seeking to take advantage of the safe harbour laws, um, the longer the laws have been in place. And I I expect safe harbour is going to be one of those things that many directors uh, or many more directors are going to uh, potentially um, seek to take advantage of in relation to the aftermath of COVID-19.
0: I think one of the discussions that I've had with insolvency practitioners is that many people may not be aware how often this is used because it is something that, if it's successful, directors don't necessarily want to make public. Uh, but are you seeing an increase in your practice of people asking about this or looking at the sorts of steps that they need to take that they can point to later to show that they were doing what was required to bring them within the safe harbour?
1: Absolutely, And in particular, we're seeing an increase, interestingly for the lawyers in this process, we're seeing an increase in the use of lawyers as the um, advisors in relation to safe harbour. So one of the things that a court looks at in determining whether or not your course of action that you are adopting is reasonably likely to lead to a better outcome for the company than just putting the company into administration or liquidation, is whether you've taken advice from what's referred to as an appropriately qualified advisor or appropriately qualified entity. And you would think traditionally or you, that the qu- appropriately qualified uh, entity would be um, a liquidator or you know, a qualified insolvency practitioner. But in fact, what's happening more and more, and particularly I think at the listed Entity side, or the the more um, the larger companies with more with boards who are um, better educated and um, better advised, is that they're using lawyers as the appropriately qualified entity. They're doing that for a couple of reasons. They're doing it firstly because there's a view that the advice that's given. Uh, will be able to be cloaked by legal professional privilege, and that is true in certain circumstances, certainly if it complies with the usual requirements for being able to claim privilege in relation to legal advice.
0: So, the safe harbour reform in 2017 will probably come into its own, sadly, over the next year or so. There are a couple of other reforms that we should mention as well, Scott, ipso facto, what was that? So the ipso
1: facto changes came into effect on the 1st of July 2018. there are a change to the law which prevents parties from exercising certain contractual rights, usually that right being a right to terminate a contract, simply because the counterparty is subject to an insolvency event. And they're commonly referred to as ipso facto clauses. And these restrictions... Apply in voluntary administration, um, in most receiverships, and in relation to ins- insolvent schemes of arrangement.
0: So, a busy um, time for insolvency practitioners, and then we've had a couple of change, further changes this year, separate from the COVID. Um, when is the Phoenixing Act that commenced? I think in February of this year.
1: That's right. So, in February, and this has been the combination I think, of at least five years. Of work within the insolvency industry to try and do something about the very serious problem that the industry has faced from unregulated and untrustworthy pre insolvency advisors. So, you have these um, pre insolvency advisors who effectively prey on ill informed, vulnerable directors of financially distressed companies by promising to solve their insolvency issues for them. And they do that usually by suggesting that they should strip their company of assets, transfer those assets to a related company and then liquidate the company with the intention to avoid paying the liabilities of the old company and continuing to operate um, a nice profitable business through the the new related company. And that's that's known as illegal phoenixing. In July 2018, um, PwC did a, a report which estimated that legal phoenixing costs the economy somewhere between 2.85 billion and 5.13 billion dollars in 2015-2016 financial year. So we're talking about you know, a lot of money. And those changes that came to effect in February. And what they, what they did, the key, the key change is to introduce this concept into the corporation's act of creditor-defeating dispositions. That's effectively where a company disposes of some sort of property for an amount less than the market value, and that sale prevents or delays property being available for distribution if the company is eventually wound up. So now liquidators have the ability to set aside these creditor-defeating dispositions, as it can also, um, if it considers that there has been one, may issue a specific notice to any person or company requiring them to transfer back an asset which has been disposed or to pay compensation in relation to the amount effectively of the benefit received from receiving that property. And interestingly, one of the um, amendments brought in with that legislation was to extend the safe harbour laws. So the safe harbour laws... Up until that point, only related to protecting directors against potential insolvent trading. But what they do now is also they protect directors, if you are in a safe harbour, from any potential personal liability associated with a disposition which otherwise would be a creditor defeating disposition as long as that disposition is entered into during the safe harbour and is in connection with that course of conduct that you're engaged in in safe harbour.
0: Gosh, that really puts the burden on the advisor, doesn't it, to make sure that they clearly have a really central role in making sure that this safe harbour is not being misused.
1: Absolutely, they, they do. I mean, the the, the benefits of safe harbour are many-fold. There There is the protection from insolvent trading, the protection from creditor-defeating dispositions, um, there is the, uh, the rigour which comes with um, having to develop a, a plan and having experts, independent experts, um, help you with that. There is the, the rigour around having to be on top of your financial position. So Safe Harbour has, has many, many benefits and um, I certainly, I think it's something which I highly recommend to, to directors of companies that are in some sort of um, you know, financial difficulty
0: Yes, and keeping the appropriate records is going to be really important, I imagine. The other thing that came in with the new phoenixing law was director identification numbers. They've just started, I think. Is that right, Scott?
1: That's right. So they the, the Act, which brought these new director identification numbers, or DINs as we call them, um, received royal assent on the 22nd of June, so not too long ago. And that was another, as you say, it was a... An important piece of the anti-illegal finishing puzzle, what was happening was that these dodgy, we call them dodgy, and that's a sort of an industry term out for these um, tree insolvency advisors, um, you know, the, un- the unregulated and effectively unqualified, they'd been setting up companies with fictitious directors or um, indeed going out and getting homeless people to become directors by paying them some sort of small cash amount before the illegal phoenix activity was undertaken, so a director would come to them and say, "I'm in some trouble." They'd say, "Don't worry. Um, you know what we'll do. We'll either set up this new company with a fictitious director, and or in relation to your company, we'll we'll, we'll swap you out as a director and put put in a homeless person, and then we'll undertake this potential illegal activity. But don't worry, you're not you won't be a director of the company when that happens." Um, and therefore you won't have any personal liability for it. So the the din regime is is going to be able to clamp down on on that sort of conduct, and it's going to make it a lot easier for the authorities to you know to trace who is a director of a company, how many companies they've been a director of, and how many failed companies they've been a director of, and so forth.
0: So you're listening to the BLS report uh, produced by the Business law section of the Law Council of Australia, and I'm Pamela Hanrahan from UNSW Business School. I have with me Scott Butler, who is Chair of the Insolvency and Reconstruction Committee of the Business Law Section. Let's move on now to the measures that have been adopted since March in response to the um, shutdown of the economy due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Amongst the reforms that were in the Omnibus Act uh, is a six-month suspension of personal liability for directors the debts that they incur in the ordinary
1: course of business. That's correct, isn't it? That That's correct. So that six-month moratorium commenced on the 25th of March, 2020, and it applies in relation to personal liability um, for insolvent trading for debts incurred in the ordinary course of business. So under Section 588, capital G of the Corporations Act, as I mentioned a little earlier, Directors have a positive duty to prevent a company incurring debts when the company is insolvent or if the incurring of that debt would make the company insolvent. And clearly, during the COVID pandemic, the government was very concerned that uh, there would be um, a whole raft of companies who would be potentially insolvent By reason of COVID, and they needed to do something about this personal liability of directors. So they brought in this six month moratorium. But as I mentioned, it only only, um, relates to debts incurred in the ordinary course of business. The problem is there's no statutory definition of what in the ordinary course of business means. I mean, there's some case commentary about it, and it's used by various, various acts as referred to in the Corporations Act and the Bankruptcy Act and so forth but there's no uniform understanding of what it means. The expansion memorandum indicates that perhaps it's more than just um, debts incurred within normal business operations. So there's an example, for instance, of a director taking out a loan to move business operations online. And so that's really a debt incurred in the restructuring of a business rather than just the running of a business in the ordinary course. But of course, then, the lawyers, we know that courts don't always take into account the terms of explanatory memoranda when they're interpreting legislation. And so there is a risk to directors who decide to rely solely on this moratorium that a debt that they incur ends up being not in the ordinary course of business and they don't have the benefit of the moratorium.
0: I know that the Insolvency and Reconstruction Committee did a lot of work very quickly with Treasury around some of these reforms. Do you want to say anything about that process? Was there a discussion from the Law Council about trying to get some further clarity on this?
1: This moratorium on insolvent trading really came out without anybody making any submissions in relation to it. We put forward a raft of uh, suggestions in relation to more administrative-type matters about how to hold meetings or what changes might be required in relation to convening of convening periods within voluntary administrations and so sort of technical things in relation to how, how the law should be potentially amended. But the, the, um, the moratorium, I think, just came about from not so much the Law Council, but certainly other bodies, the Turnaround Management Association, ARITA, uh, making, you know, making submissions or, or talking to, tr- to Treasury about those things.
0: That's a universal experience for us at the business law section, isn't it? You know, how you get in front of Treasury and point out the potential difficulties with these kinds of changes without being seen as, you know, a group that is kind of slowing down necessarily, relaxations and so on. So, I think you know, that's a challenge that we've all had. Um, so w- when you are advising clients about, the say, this temporary suspension of personal liability under 588G, it sounds like most of the members of the Insolvency and Reconstruction Committee would be fairly conservative on advising on this. I think they
1: probably would. I mean, certainly the line that I'm taking with my clients is, yes, it's great to have the blanket moratorium, but the safest position would be to make sure that you comply with the safe harbour eligibility requirements as they existed previously, because then there'll be no doubt about a debt being protected um, rather than having to rely on this, is it, is it incurred in the ordinary course of business? As we mentioned before, the, the safe harbour has you know, other benefits in relation to preventing directors being potentially exposed also later to actions by liquidators in relation to dispositions, which they um, make during a restructuring being attacked as credited defeating dispositions.
0: Yes, yes, that makes perfect sense. Um, There were also some changes in that omnibus bill around statutory demands and bankruptcy notices. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. So the other key changes, uh, as you just mentioned, were in relation to two things in relation to bankruptcy notices and statutory demands. Firstly, the limits in relation to the the statutory monetary limits in relation to each were increased. So they both went up to $20,000 so previously it was $5,000, um, you needed a judgment debt of $5,000 to issue a bankruptcy notice and a statutory demand was a $2,000 debt. They went up to $20,000 and the time for compliance with a statutory demand or a bankruptcy notice were extended from 21 days to, to six months and that applies to any, of, any bankruptcy notice or statutory demands served up until the 25th of September 2020. Which really means, from a practical perspective, you're very unlikely to bother serving a statutory demand or serving a bankruptcy notice during that period because it just you have to wait six months.
0: The other main response, I guess, that affects your area of practice is some of that technical um, relief that was in the treasurer's determination around meetings and electronic signing of documents and so on. Could you tell us about those?
1: On the 5th of May, there was a determination issued. It was one of those ones made on the government's new power under Section 1362, capital A of the Corporations Act, which was introduced. And that direction applies until the 5th of November. And it uh, does two things. It allows the electronic signing of documents by companies, as long as you comply with you know, certain um, requirements within the determination, but it also allows companies to have an entirely virtual meetings and to issue electronic notices of meetings. And of course, that's very relevant to any of the, the members who practice in the in the corporate area in relation to members of uh, meetings of members. But it's also relevant to meetings of creditors in insolvencies. And the things that have changed is you, you can issue a notice of meeting. Um, electronically, the meetings can be held entirely online without anyone being physically present. You can have proxies being appointed for virtual meetings. But if you you do hold a meeting virtually, then there's a couple of things you need to to do. Votes have to be taken at the meeting on a poll and not a show of hands. And then all the individuals who attend the meeting have to be given an opportunity to speak and ask questions. That's pretty, pretty simple sort of stuff, but it's certainly important to enable meetings of creditors in insolvency proceedings to continue during COVID um, isolation.
0: We've been thinking about these issues from the corporate law side as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's right. And so we've just talked about this moratorium on insolvent trading, um, but directors, of course, still have other duties that they owe to the company. How do those directors' duties in, in the Corporations Act under uh, Section 180 and 181 How do they apply when the company is in this sort of zone of insolvency?
0: Yeah, it's interesting, Scott. We've been seeing amongst the director community a lot of anxiety, particularly around um, Section 181 of the Corporations Act, which is the duty on corporate officers to act in good faith in the best interests of the company as a whole. And I think in recent years there's been a lot of discussion about whether – the company's interests are wholly to be equated with the interests of its shareholders or whether um, when directors are making decisions about what's in the best interests of the company, they need to consider the viewpoint of other stakeholders as well and you know at the beginning of the economic shutdown, the Prime Minister was talking a lot about the sort of team Australia moment and people needing to keep going and uh, look after their employees and their customers and suppliers and landlords and all of those things that we do care about in business. And I think amongst the director community, it was kind of, there was a bit of a sense of, well, you know, are we expected to manage through the crisis to protect the interests of all of the different stakeholders in the business? or should we be focusing really on you know what's going to be best over the longer term for the owners of the business traditionally thought of as, sh- as shareholders so i think for corporate lawyers in particular we've been talking a lot about the idea that when directors are considering where the company's interests lie in a solvent company it's usually the case that you you know what's good for the general body of shareholders over the medium term is going to be good for the company. But as the company moves towards insolvency, the interests of creditors, I think, come more to the fore in that discussion. So, you do have to think about as a director, as you're you sort of moving into that space, you do have to think about the impact of the decisions that you're making, not just on the future viability of the business for the benefit of shareholders, but also what the impact of that is going to be on creditors. And One thing that we're going to have to think about increasingly over the next 12 months is, I hesitate to say it because it sounds a bit flippant, but how to fail well. Not all businesses are going to survive and not all businesses are going to survive in their current form. We know that. Um, I was a young lawyer at Arthur Robinson and Hedewicks in Victoria in the early 1990s and I know what it's like to go through recession and we know that not everybody's going to come through and come out the other side. So, It's a big responsibility for directors to think not only about how to keep going but the right point at which um, not to continue and not just because of the threat of insolvent trading liability and the threat for directors of trustee companies under 197 of the Corporations Act Uh, and, of course, directors' personal liability for various forms of unpaid tax. But it's not always just a question about personal liability. I think it's also about saying, you know we we do have to make some difficult decisions at this time and it might be better for the shareholders and the creditors not to continue with the business and that can be a really difficult decision to make
1: no I absolutely agree absolutely agree and one of the issues i think we face at the moment is with the stimulus on the ongoing stimulus we there's a number a lot of companies that probably well were struggling pre covid and are just now on a lifeline stimulus lifeline but they really shouldn't be in business and they should be restructured or, or closed down. And, and perhaps that will happen when the stimulus finishes.
0: What's keeping the insolvency and reconstruction committee members awake at night? What's worrying you the most? Uh, what we're
1: really all concerned about is we think there's going to be a wave of insolvencies coming along once the, the macro level federal government stimulus finishes, but we don't know exactly when that will be and we don't know when that wave will hit. We don't know whether it's going to be one wave or two or three. And so I think that's certainly concerning is at the moment we have indications that the JobKeeper payments will not be extended past September and they might be replaced with some more targeted stimulus in relation to certain sectors such as tourism. But we don't really have a handle on what the federal government will do. And that's largely because they're reacting and adapting to the data they have about the virus on an ongoing basis. And then we have this uncertainty around international tourist travel. Um, We've got an increasing number of covid-19 cases globally rather than decreasing and so this you know when the international borders will be open that horizon seems to be getting further and further away and the big concern i think is that when and if this large wave of insolvencies hit there isn't going to be potentially sufficient skilled liquidators or skilled insolvency accountants to handle all the work And likewise, there may not be sufficient skilled insolvency lawyers to handle it, as it came out recently and said that they also thought there may not be enough liquidators to handle the insolvency wave coming. And what we've had, which has been great for the economy and it's been great for corporate lawyers, hasn't been so good for insolvency lawyers, is decades of good times in Australia. And less and less lawyers and accountants have been choosing insolvency as a specialist area. So the big question, I think, is when is the wave going to hit? And then, how are we going to handle the work when it when it gets here?
0: Yes, a good problem for Hall and Wilcox, perhaps, but <laughs> less so for us. Certainly, you know, as a as a article clerk um, at, in the early nineteen nineties in Victoria, you know, we saw exactly that. So there was a significant need to upskill young lawyers in particular. And I worked on some extraordinary transactions at that time, including the reconstruction of the three sisters that will age me, but DJ's toothsome. Um, you know, a couple of the big ANSET uh, failure and so on. So it's it's not something that any of us wanted to see again, but I suspect you're right. I think we will have to, as a profession, be quite nimble and be there to make sure that we're able to assist our clients in what will be really unusual circumstances. So I'm so grateful to you, Scott, for sharing your expertise with the BLS report and with all of our um, section members, I know people will be very grateful uh, for that. Um, so thank you again. I know, my pleasure. And thanks, everyone.